Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. Climate change is here to stay, but what should we be doing today to live for tomorrow? To discuss these topics, I'm joined today by Doug Bartley, Associate Professor and expert in environmental and agricultural risk management. Hi, Andy. Melissa Nursey Bray, Associate Professor and expert in how communities adapt and engaging people to be part of the solution. Hello, Andy. Adriana Milazzo, Senior Lecturer and expert in infectious disease and planetary health. Hi, Andy. Hi, welcome all. We're seeing some pretty intense impacts from climate change raging bushfires, unprecedented tropical storms, runs of record-breaking temperatures and deepening droughts. So how do we cope and adapt in the face of these climatic onslaughts? Doug, we're into uh, bushfire season in California at the moment and we've only just emerged uh, from a massive uh, bushfire season ourselves. So what's the link with climate change Mm. and bushfires? There's just so many links that we're starting to see. We're, we're, we're moving into a new era in relation to environmental risk. And, and the way that's showing itself, the way it's revealing itself, is through bushfire within our regions. And the California is actually very similar to South Australia. And we both have a Mediterranean climate type. So we're similar to parts of Spain or Italy, California, s- Southern Australia, a few patches in Chile and, and South Africa as well. All those climate types are experiencing a warming, drying trend. They've always burnt. They've always had these bushfire experiences. But there's a number of factors about climate change that are driving those bushfire risks now. One is it's just getting drier. And we've seen this particularly across large parts of Australia, but also in California. It's just much more likely to burn when you have fuel that is is ready to go. Uh, And then there's, there's more heat. And it's also coming down in particular events. And so we're getting very strong driven events coming through, which drive the heat with strong winds, which starts fires. In California in particular, there was a lot of lightning strikes there. So they weren't being lit by people. There there was a particular type of storm, a dry storm. We're having similar types of things across southern Australia. But then from then on, it's driving fires in ways that we haven't experienced before because it's just so hot and dry. And those in in California, again, they have the Santa Ana winds, which descend over the Rockies and and the coastal range and drive those those wind events. I can just see it now. That's right. (laughs) So even worse than us in that respect. But we had very similar uh, events. Just it it becomes impossible to fight those fires. We have fantastic fireys across Australia, Mm. uh, highly skilled but it's a new normal in how we're going to have to adapt and respond to those risks. So, I mean, as you say, fire's always been part of those ecosystems. Just the problem is that these confluence of weather conditions is just making these fires so intense. So, so what can we do about it? Yeah, I think there are a number of ways that we're going to have to, to learn. One is better climate and ecological science and, and knowing more about how those fires are impacting on systems. And there are a lot of people at Adelaide Uni in science faculty in particular who are looking at those types of, uh, types of questions. What we do and what we're really interested in is how we're going to manage our systems differently and how, how we'll govern them. What type of systems will we put in place so that people are making the right decisions in the right ways in relation to that? We've been looking, for example, in 
the peri-urban Adelaide region, the area around Adelaide, the Mount Lofty Ranges in particular, and the Southern Air Peninsula, mm. two areas which experience a lot of these uh, fires. And it's clear that fire hasn't been built into the way we plan our landscapes particularly. So when we're designing our landscape, where we're going to put a suburb, where we're going to put a road, fire isn't necessarily taken into account very much. And that seems almost silly to us now, but that's the type of thing we can build into decision making so that when we have a new urban development, we know that people are going to be able to move in and out of that urban development well, that fire trucks are going to be, ad going to, be able to get in and out. Uh, we know that we're going to be able to protect that area from prescribed burns, those burns that we do to reduce fuel loads yeah. or clearances in, in different ways. So all of those types of things will have to respond to the new level of risk. And that first step then is that ownership of that risk. And that's hard. That is really hard for governments and, and decision makers to accept that level of risk because we're seeing it across a lot of environmental systems, the Murray-Darling Basin, et cetera, et cetera. That's the big challenge now. Once we accept that risk, we'll move into, a, I think, a new era of better decision making in relation to things like bushfire. So kind of accepting that we're on, on, on the verge, on the brink, that's part of the, uh, the first challenge really, isn't we're, it? We're seeing it across all societies. In the United States, that debate is raging at the highest levels as well. Yeah. Uh, who, who's accountable here? You know, uh, we've heard uh, that there's too much fuel at times, there's too little fuel, that too many people are moving into these landscapes, that more people should move in. There's a debate that is going that, on. That national parks yeah, that, should be burnt uh, exactly. and uh, should be, should be levelled because they start fires. And you know, the great thing that comes out of our research is consistently people are saying these national parks are wonderful. We don't want to get rid of them for, for, for because of this risk, but we want the risk managed better. Yeah. So that is the discussion that I think a mature society can have. So what, what do we do about food production? Uh, how, do, how does climate change impact agriculture? Yeah. I, in, again, in, in many ways, we, we're blessed with a Mediterranean climate. Again, for agriculture, is a fantastic thing. It's no... Uh, around the world, our type of climate system drives some of the most complex and attractive agricultural systems and landscapes. And I think uh, that's a fantastic thing about South Australia, actually, and we exploit that beautifully. Now, on the margins, that's going to be problematic because you get, as you get a warming, drying trend, for example, along the Goiters line, which is the margin between the pastoral areas further to the north and the agrarian uh, systems or the or the crop production systems so, south. So that's, that's that's the line of kind of permanent agriculture, that's, isn't it? That's if you, right. If you go over that line, you're, you're dicing with uh, the, the weather. Really. That's right. Yep. So they're going to have particular challenges with transitioning into a new type of agricultural system. Yeah. We've been working more in the core agricultural areas. We've got a project in Light Council for a for example, at the moment with grain producers there, a core producers and. We've had for a lot of a series of projects in the McLaren Vale, and down there the vignerons are making a whole lot of good decisions about how they're adapting to climate change. That isn't necessarily so well known that farmers are onto this. They they they're dealing with the weather all the time. It's part and parcel of their uh, decision making from day to day, from season to season, from year to year, and long term decision making. And so in many ways, they're ahead of the broader debate that goes on in Australia. And in the Caron Vale, you've seen individuals responding at the, the field level where they make uh, their choice of varieties. For example, what types of grapes they might grow. More and more of them are introducing 
grape varieties from the southern parts of Europe. So traditionally we've grown the Rhone Valley grape varieties like Shiraz, Grenache and etc. Now by choosing from further south, they're able to uh, grow grapes that are more adapted to a hotter, drier climate. So that's happening, that's happening now. So you don't hear about that, but it, it is happening now that they're making that transition. So I'm going to get even, even fuller bodied uh, wines coming out of this process. And, the, and no, no more Pinots, is that, so, is that how it works? <laughs> well, the Pinots will sit, shift down to Tasmania and I think that's yeah. already happening in, in the same way and, and, and it's true. But those vignerons then adapt across their farm and then they work together to adapt, like down in the McLaren Vale where we've been working, they've been working strongly to get recycled water systems across there to hold that water better so that they've got a resource that they're not dependent on the groundwater which is declining bit by bit with the drying conditions. Yeah. And I think you make a really important point because the farmers are out there every day. They see what the weather's like. They notice the change in the climate over years because the the product that they're producing is dependent uh, on that climate. So they're, they're really some of the first uh, parts of society to incorporate these adaptations. Yes, and, and talking with CFS and others who work in fire, they also know. So uh, there's, a, there's a different debate going on, and this is what we look at a little bit, between those people, those practitioners who are actually working with climate in their systemic area, their field, and the broader debate that's going on to, in society, which is still a little bit ambivalent about how important climate change is going to be. For those farmers, for those bushfire fighters, it is absolutely important now. Yeah, and they've already accepted that it's here to stay mm -hmm. and they're doing something about it. Yes. Yeah. So let's, uh, let, let's talk about some, some of the other impacts of climate change. So Adriana, um, I'd be interested to talk a little bit about disease and the uh, impacts and changes, uh, or disease in general, you know, but uh, what, what happens with, with climate change and disease? Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, there is scientific evidence to kind of suggest and to show that direct impact of um, climate change, so kind of extreme weather patterns on infectious diseases. And in South Australia, we know that we've experienced such hot, dry conditions. Like last year was our hottest record um, uh, all over Australia. And, you know, as, as Doug said, with South Australia, it's a very kind of dry Mediterranean temperate climate. And there are a couple of kind of infectious diseases that are what we would say um, climate driven or kind of um, temperature sensitive infectious diseases. And one is quite a common infectious disease called salmonella. So what that is, it's a foodborne um, infection, so it can be caused by um, eating contaminated food. And it's a bacterial infection of the, of the, um, of the gut. So it, if you get salmonella, the main symptoms are like diarrhoea and vomiting and tummy pains. So some We've all been on holiday and <laughs> had, uh, had something like that, haven't we? Yeah. That's right. So the work that I've done, um, I've been able to demonstrate that um, there's increases in salmonella infection associated with very high temperatures. Right. So I looked at heat waves. So we found that there was a 34% increase in um, incidence of salmonella or like notifications of salmonella because it's a notifiable disease to the communicable disease control branch at the health department. And that was particularly relevant with very hot temperatures. So over right. 41 degrees. So what, why, why is that? <clears throat> 
That's because the bacteria kind of proliferates. It, it can sort of multiply and, and grow in quite sort of warm conditions. So it will kind of amplify within ideal conditions is 35 to 43 degrees temperature. So um, the heat waves that we have here are really kind of ideal for that bacteria to proliferate. So, and we are, we're seeing record temperatures of over 40 degrees. It's not unusual to have temperatures of 45, 46 degrees. And several days in a row as well. And several it? days, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that really does kind of, you know, impact on, on sort of, on people, on sort of kind of managing and coping with such hot conditions and particularly with food as well. You know, like I'm thinking about in the house, that people, if they're not storing their food correctly, um, not refrigerating their food, then there can be food spoilage. And so what I've also sh um, demonstrated with my research is that there's what we call delayed effects. So delayed effects from being exposed in that kind of um, hot temperature to um, actually infection. And so I've demonstrated quite short uh, delayed effects of zero days up to 14 days, so meaning that it even persists in hot temperatures over a long period of time. Oh, right. So there's points where we can intervene, yeah. being at the household level, in terms of food consumption and how they store their food, but also taking that back to production. So it's gotta so, be through the supply chain yeah, of food, exactly. hasn't it, yeah. has the impact. That's right, so you think about the food chain. So, so my kids come home late at night, uh, you know, grab some cereal and eat and then leave the, the milk out on the side. So it's, it's got to go back in the fridge, doesn't That's it? right. Unless That's you get right. salmonella, lads. Yeah. yeah. But it's also kind <laughs> of like, you know, our kind of cultural practices as well. Yeah. You know, like in, in hot weathers, we will have a barbecue. And so we might leave our what, food out on a hot day. Is this the end day. of the Australian barbecue? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so there's all those kind of things that we need to think about. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so good, good food practice, basically. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what we found was that the kind of the level of knowledge around food safety in households in South Australia was um, was not optimal. So um, yeah. So people not. Um, like washing their hands after handling or before and after handling food, um, like using cutting boards for raw meat, not knowing their temperature, uh, uh, which their fridge should be set, but I don't think I would know that either, working yeah. <laughs> in infectious diseases. And, um, and we actually looked at practices during hot weather and we found that what was risky, they were in engaging in risky behaviour in that they were leaving um, like raw meat out to defrost on the bench for more than four hours. So if it's okay. a really hot day, the bacteria is going to grow. So maybe defrost it in the fridge overnight. De that's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, um, but and, and yeah. Department for Health would probably have some of those guidelines. Yeah, they're uh, really yeah. good. Like, um, they, they do, they have really good guidelines. They work with like retail uh, outlets, commercial outlets that serve food. So kind of leading up to Christmas, they will do lots of kind of like food safety campaigns. Yeah, okay. So, but we also need to work at the, pop, at the community level, I think as well. Yeah. So th thanks, and uh, I, I saw an interesting study the other day about uh, butterflies. I'll get onto the relevance in a minute. Oh, okay. But uh, butterflies are basically changing uh, their their range due to climate change. So because it's getting warmer uh, and uh, rainfall's changing, then the butterflies are migrating uh, to to match temperature. 
But this also has a, an impact for disease as well, not necessarily from, from butterflies, but from yeah. other, other agents, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, and it does. It has an impact on mosquito-borne diseases. So, um, you know, uh, Ross River virus, which is a viral infection, um, so the vector being the mosquito, and we find that mosquitoes really like very warm, humid environments, and particularly after um, heavy rain, where there's flooding, they will kind of like, there'll be um, like geographical, I suppose, habitats or mosquito breeding habitats. And so this will change because what we'll find is that the actual um, geographical area of, of these uh, mosquito breeding habitats will change where we're seeing flooding. And we know in South Australia that after heavy rainfall, we will see increased cases of Ross River virus. Um, so, so hang on a minute, this is a disease we haven't seen here before? No, we have uh, seen, yeah. but it's going, to, it's going to be actually spread in, in other kind of geographical areas, particularly yeah. after kind of flooding. Yeah. Um, so we're finding, particularly in South Australia, after flooding, it'll be like along the River Murray where um, mosquitoes will kind of have their breeding habitats and that's where we see increased cases you know like people on holidays they've got shacks down there things like that so we really need to kind of think about um, you know how we can kind of mitigate those sorts of problems with ensuring that there isn't stagnant water lying around yeah. but also kind of you know having good surveillance so good surveillance of mosquitoes. And there's kind of um, one health concept that I'm really interested in, where it's that kind of interdependence between humans, the environment and animal health. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's really important when we think about emerging infectious diseases, which two thirds are zoonotic, which means that they're spread from um, animals to humans and okay. COVID-19 yeah being one that's yep. not necessarily climate driven. I think it's a bit too early, but there is some studies kind of looking at the relationship between temperature and COVID-19. So um, I think there needs to be a commitment at all levels, at government and specific kind of sectors to look at combining or a one health approach. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about this, this planetary health mm. idea. So it's basically the idea of if you have a healthy ecosystem, yeah. a healthy environment, then you reduce the amount of infectious diseases and problems that yes. are associated with that. Is that right? Yeah, so planetary health is kind of a new discipline area and it's really taking off and one health is kind of a framework or an approach within planetary health. So we need to be looking after our earth. We need to be looking after our planet because our eco ecosystem is so fragile that, you know, we need to ensure for survival and for our future generation that we look after our planet. Um, by not doing that, we're destroying, you know, ecosystems, um, impacts on human health. So yeah, planetary health is a really growing area that we really need to be serious about. So we should be out there planting trees, but the right kind of trees to exactly. uh, uh, to yeah. restore habitats, to restore yeah. biodiversity, ecosystem services, yes. uh, and reduce these disease transmissions. That's, that's right, because it's all, you know, you just think about globalization and urbanization encroaching in kind of those areas and that kind of contact with animals and humans. So we need to kind of preserve that as much as we can. Great. Something we can do. Uh, Melissa, hi. Hi. 
So uh, trees, so can we use trees in urban environments? Uh, what's, what's the impact of climate change in, in urban environments and in our, in our cities? What, what kind of impacts are we seeing there and how, how can we help mitigate those? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, we've got an increasing urbanisation across the world. I just read a statistic that said, you know, we're, we're looking at 40 million people in Australia by 2050 and something like 80% of those people are going to be living in cities. So it's a big, it's a big issue that we're facing. And of course, the issues of climate change in cities, we're, we're experiencing, you know, sea level rise and coastal inundation. But I guess the thing that's really pressing um, and, and will keep on being a focus is the issue of, of urban heat. So you know basically our cities are getting hotter and you know in some ways you know like 48 degrees reaching boiling point and it's what are we going to do about that now there's a few things and that, that those temperatures are potentially lethal aren't they? they're potentially lethal and yeah. you, you look at like a heat, heat wave um, years ago actually um, when climate change was just so sort of like showing its head in Paris 20,000 people died 20,000 yeah, people died, yeah, died, in, died Paris. in Paris yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's it's you know it's inconceivable you can't really understand how the human system can be overset by heat, but it can be, and people basically get sick and die. And in so, places, so basically there's no escape from the heat, you know, no, the buildings aren't designed to get rid of heat? No, that's right. No and real air conditioning? No real air conditioning, yeah, yeah. and the thing about urban, urban ecology as well, trees is really important, so you know, the treescapes can also provide shade and literally can cool down a city by up to 10 degrees. And you've got places and cities, as, as all cities had, which are socioeconomically more vulnerable. Those particular um, regions usually don't have the resources to do things like have air conditioning or put in the kind of building design that's needed. So I guess, you know, looking forward, um, there's a few things, you know, um, water is a big issue, water flow, water quality, water access uh, as we're going through in cities. So you'll, you'll see a lot of things. I mean, uh, building design is a really big one and local governments across the world. In fact, there's a thing called C40, which is sort of cl climate change and, and local governments getting together. So Local governments across the world have this sort of big consortium where they work together on policies to adapt to change. And one of those is looking at building um, design, so you know to, to mitigate heat and to um, cool places. And then of course there's lots of strategies in lots of cities where they're urban greening strategies. You know, in Australia we have a lot like one million trees planted in the next number of uh, period of time. Looking forward to trying to um, things like verge gardening. There's you know in in, in Adelaide for example, you can put an application to a lo local government to basically create the verges in the streetscapes into mm. either food production or other forms of vegetation, which can then offset some of that need for shade and, and lowering heat. So I think, you know, moving forward, uh, there's lots of layers of doing things, but local government's probably very crucial to helping invest and um, inspire people at the local levels to come on board and do those things. Um, because I just wanted to make a note about what we call maladaptation. So yeah. um, this is classic in a, in a city scenario is that, you know, air conditioning is one way of adapting yeah. to extreme heat. But it's one of those things that's called maladaptive because, of course, it releases many emissions. So when we have um, very hot days and so lots of people use air conditioning, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it, not it's, the preferred it's, or the it's best helping adaptation. create the problem yeah. it's trying to ad uh, adapt to. So yeah. I guess looking <laughs> right. at things like sustainable um, water design in cities, looking at places where you can build um, a treescapes, looking at building design that's going to actually functionally make it possible to live in a city in a much more sustainable way are the kind of things that will be able to 
so many of us are going to be urbanised, respond to that challenge, but li just live because the heat and, and other dimensions are going to be very challenging. So, uh, that, I mean, that's a great concept. Does anywhere get it right? Well, you know, like, I, I don't know if anywhere has got it right yet, but you do see there's uh, lots of examples across the world. There are cities like Stockholm and Freiburg that are sort of going ahead. New York has a very, um, uh, very articulated sort of greening strategy and climate adaptation strategy. Um, and in Australia, like, for example, we've got um, in Melbourne a, a program that's deliberately invested in for sustainable buildings. And, you know, I, I have seen a number of sustainable buildings now where it is possible. I guess the caveat to that is that it costs money and so it needs needs investment to to move forward. And so that, I think, is probably the crux of the problem. Yeah. And secondly, um, you know, communicating to people, raising awareness that there are these options out there. There's often a lot of hopelessness um, and people are very busy in cities. And of course, in a climate change context in cities, we're not just dealing with climate change, but the reality of increasing urbanisation, which the, 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 the densification of population caused by urbanisation and migration in cities amplifies the impacts of climate change while also many people have to try and respond to it. So the infrastructure issues that are created by urbanisation and population migration in turn create and amplify some of the climate impacts and then they kind of need to be resolved together. So I think, you know, addressing climate change in a city is also about addressing some of the challenges of moving forward in policy for things like infrastructure development, water design, how we build our transport systems, because all of those things can in turn reduce the climate impact. Yeah. Um, not yeah. just the climate impact, but the fact that cities are creating the climate impact. So the kind of intersection between the consciousness of addressing both those things is a, is a big part of the sustainable city. So I guess, I guess part of the problem is we, we kind of know what to do. We need to decarbonise and uh, remove the, the problem of climate change, but we, we're still not doing that. We're still having discussions yeah. around whether climate change is real or not. I mean, um, so, so part, of, part of that issue is we probably know what some of the solutions are, uh, but at an individual level, as you said, there's this sense of hopelessness. Uh, you know, it probably doesn't matter what I do because uh, the government should do something. You know, there's a kind of transferring... Uh, of issues. Uh, some of those issues may cost money uh, to do something. So, you know, how, how do you really motivate people to become part of that solution? Um, well, you know, I've got no magic, magic answer to that really, <laughs> but I, I guess as a reflection, um, I think that part of it is about providing some kind of communication um, process that enables people to feel inspired to do change and also to kind of galvanise them around projects where they feel that even if they're doing a little bit, it's, it's a little bit. It's still making and, a and difference. It's still yeah, making a yeah, difference. Yeah. So, so one dimension of that that I've, some of the research I've done is around community gardens. Doug, Doug could talk to you a little bit about food security in urban contexts. But, you know, there are lots of examples where, where people come together and grow their own vegetables and they do it for all sorts of reasons in community gardens. But one of the reasons is sort of building an adaptive capacity to provide for yourself and feel like that you're creating a community and a sense of moving forward um, in places like where that are hit by bushfires where collectives are getting together to help each other to to say for example pay for the kind of fireproofing that they need there are there are ways in which I think small collectives become bigger ones and in some cases have become international networks of support so I think that's one dimension the other dimension though that I would also say is I think it's really important to politicize people like my, my view is that you know people have politicized so really yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. 
people have become now frightened to be political, you know, uh, in many ways, to yeah. stick stick their head out to go, okay, I'm going to be a greenie campaigner on this because, you know, someone will turn around... What, this is what I believe yeah, in, But isn't someone it? will yeah. turn around and sue you, you know? Yeah, yeah, so it's like, well, yeah. okay, how am I going to navigate that challenge? And I think ultimately governments do listen to people because if you vote them in or out, they do <laughs> listen. And so part of what I see is, is building critical mass or, or you know, social capital uh, in, in, in particularly urban urban regions to say this is what we want and we're, we're building we're building these initiatives and they're making us feel good and you know I'm doing my thing for recycling and I'm doing my thing I've put in the the windows and the insulation but then in turn that that builds a confidence to then go to the politicians and say actually you know this matters mm. and we're, we're going to vote. And so the, the, the policy then is almost inextricably connected to that, that political agenda which then can move it forward. So I think a lot of people are frightened of being political and I think part of the agenda moving forward is to encourage people not to be frightened and to say, actually, if there are enough of us, it, it, does, it does change how people see things. And even with COVID, new visions, you know, all these stories coming out, air pollution is cleared, you can see the fish in the Venetian canals. You know, people are experiencing <laughs> stuff wow, in still cities. Alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> experiencing things in cities they haven't maybe experienced in their entire lifetime and gone, wow, that's, that's different. And therefore it's possible. And not only is it possible, it's possible on a global scale. So COVID has been, you know, so tremendously tragic in so many ways. But to me, it's also like an article of hope that you can see things ha can happen globally and they can also happen for the good. Yeah. Wow. So we've had a pretty interesting discussion. We've gone from fires through to agriculture adaptation with diseases, what we should, how we should be handling our food, and then right through to how we build cities and how communities can really engage in, in that. Um, for, I'd like to cast our minds forward a bit. So for, for new students coming into the university, what would they potentially be working on? So what cutting edge issues might they be uh, addressing in this kind of area? I think the, the cutting edge issue, um, one of them is, is about how, how to just build, um, build and integrate different, different places together. So like a solution to climate change is often also a solution to a whole bunch of other things. So that you would start and you'd go, well, if I'm, I'm building, that the skill I'm going to need is not just a technical understanding of the insulation, but how you're going to actually get that to be applied in a wider scheme in policy moving forward. So I think, I so, think so the that skill of the future the is the linking. solution yeah. together with the implementation, yeah. the policy, yeah. you know, the social drivers. Yeah. I feel like that's the key challenge, yeah. but also the key opportunity for students moving forward as they move forward because you know often you say oh you're the decision makers of the future and I, you know a few people will end up decision makers but a lot of people actually end up contributing to the substantive challenge which is that linking because like you said we often have the answers we know what to do we know what the problem is we know what the answer is but there's something in the middle that that prevents it so I don't know what exactly it looks like but I think that that challenge in the middle is what students need to be working on or could be working on and they might be working on climate change, but they could also be working on something completely different that will contribute to the climate challenge because basically climate change amplifies all the other challenges. And you don't have to always think I'm working in climate change. You can say I'm an architect, but by the way, I'm contributing to, to, to trying to bridge that gap between building a building and making it sustainable and convincing the people in the middle that they should invest in it. Yep. Thanks. 
We've got some fantastic research students who are doing exactly that in, in our field, which is geography. They're doing a lot of that using the technical and social science knowledge, working with people to come up with solutions. And it's a very applied yeah, approach. Very applied. I mentioned before that we're doing some work with Light Council. One of my master's students is working with uh, grain producers up there to look at their the risks, how they're experiencing climate change, but also how they're adapting and how policy and, and investment in their area could support them to adapt in different ways. So very much in there, talking with people, working with environmental and social knowledge to, to bring that together. So it's this, this holistic approach really, Absolutely. isn't it? And mm. working with the community, working with industry, not just being isolated in the university, but getting out there, understanding the issues and working with those groups. Exactly. Another, another student of mine has just completed his PhD, just got his result last week. He's looking at remote uh, regions in Nepal and how we can use uh, renewable energy technologies within those landscapes where they don't have access to an electricity grid, both to support them to, to develop and, and to become wealthier, but also adapt to climate change because they're experiencing extreme climate change in the Himalayas at the moment. And so that combination of technologies, working with people closely for good outcomes is just a fantastic field to work in and that, that's what we support with it, with, within geography. So um, I work in public health and public health is very multidisciplinary and I think definitely emerging infectious diseases and zoonotic diseases <laughs> are quite really a bit of interest <laughs> in that just at the moment, wouldn't they? There yeah. is a lot of interest. <laughs> So I think it equips um, students with kind of a lot of different skills in um, statistics, in policy, in evaluation, in health promotion, in epidemiology, so understanding kind of like the health status of populations. So I think that kind of, um, that kind of population focus so rather than the individual having kind of that really broad perspective that we need to think about the population, but working with industry and working with a whole range of people because it's not going to take one person, it's people with so many different um, disciplines and skills to work on a solution. And, and the reduction of these problems through proactive management mm. instead of uh, just mopping up after the problems arise. Yeah, that's know. right, that's mm. exactly right. So Adriana, Melissa, Doug, thanks for being on the Discovery Pod. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for listening to the Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. Join us next time when we discuss nutrition.